Okay, so Acts chapter 4, verse 32, all the way through to chapter 5, verse 16. Now the large group of those who believed were of one heart and mind, and no one said that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. And the apostles were giving testimony with great power to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on all of them. For there was not a needy person among them, because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed for each person's basic needs. Joseph, a Levite and a Cypriot by birth, the one of the apostles called Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias and with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. However, he kept back part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge and brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds from the field? Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it that you planned this thing in your heart? You have lied, not lied to men, but to God. When he heard these words, Ananias dropped dead, and a great fear came on all who heard. The young men got up, wrapped his body, carried him out and buried him. There was an interval of about three hours. Then his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Tell me, Peter asked her, did you sell the field for this price? Yes, she said, for that price. Then Peter said to her, why did you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Instantly, she dropped dead at his feet. When the young men came in, they found her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Then great fear came on the whole church and on all who heard these things. Many signs and wonders were being done among the people through the hands of the apostles. By common consent, they would all meet in Solomon's colonnade. None of the rest dared to join them, but the people praised them highly. Believers were added to the Lord in increasing numbers, crowds of both men and women. As a result, they would carry the sick out into the streets and lay them on the cots and mats so that when, people, when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. In addition, a large group came together from the towns surrounding Jerusalem bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good day. How are you going? Uh, I'm Tim. Uh, I, I'm a student minister here at Church by the Bridge. Uh, I usually go uh, to church on Sunday nights at 5 p.m., uh, but it's a privilege to be here and open God's Word with you. Uh, before we start, how about I pray and ask for God's help? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are here with us. Uh, we thank you that as your family we can open your word and, and learn how better to live as your family here on earth. 
Uh, we pray now that your spirit will come amongst us, uh, illuminate your text, um, change our hearts to make us more like your son. We pray this for your glory, in your son's name. Amen. I want to open tonight by asking a question. Um, imagine if Church by the Bridge, here at 5.30 on Saturday night, imagine it was a loving, vibrant, inclusive community. Imagine it was a community where nothing was too much, no price was too high. Imagine it was a place that people longed to join, they longed to be a part of, because when they looked at this community, what they saw was love being lived out in action. Now, if you just imagine that, what a great community, no problem, what a great community that would be. Imagine if you were part of that community. Well, well, this passage that we've just had read for us in Acts, it gives us the ingredients for this kind of loving community. But also, you'll see in the second part of it, it highlights what could bring this loving community undone. So that's what we're going to look at tonight. We're going to look at those two things, the ingredients for a loving community, and that is grace-driven generosity, and we're going to look at what can bring this community undone. And that is, that is masquerading, oops, sorry, let me get it right, <laughs> misleading masquerades. So firstly, let's bring ourselves up to speed. If you missed the last couple of weeks, uh, we'll bring up to speed on where we are in Acts so that the passage that we've just read makes a lot of sense. Um, so what we've had in Acts previously uh, is the early church has exploded. It's gone from 120 people to 5,000 men, and that's not including women and children. So if you can imagine from 120, we're going to about 10,000, maybe 15,000 people. The church has exploded, and the apostles, with the help of the Holy Spirit, are powerfully preaching about the resurrection of Jesus. And, and through the help of the Spirit, they're, they're doing these amazing miracles, healing people, raising people from the dead, making lame men walk. And last week in chapter 4, Dan would have told you uh, about the church and how it was actually being attacked from the outside. The local authorities were trying to attack the church and they ended up throwing two of the apostles in jail. But they couldn't hold them. And that's where we are tonight. That's where we pick up Luke's historical account of the early church. Uh, we pick it up in chapter 4, uh, verse 32. And as we look at this, uh, we will see the first thing that I mentioned at the beginning. We will see the ingredients to make this loving community. And what that is, is a radically grace-driven generosity. So have a look with me, follow along. We're just going to skip through the text from uh, chapter 4, verse 32. And as we go through it, I'm going to stop and just make a couple of comments and we'll just keep rolling through the story. Because I think this story is actually a really amazing story. So follow along with me from chapter 4, verse 32, where Luke says, Now a large group of those who believed were of one heart and one mind, and no one said that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. Now in this, in this community, there, there's a oneness that exists between the early believers. Uh, they, they're of one mind and one heart. Uh, they share one goal. Uh, they are of one thought, they are of one love. They are, if you can picture it like this, they are, they are like you guys. 
They're like one big family. When I was listening to the opening encouragement, the amount of times that people said, we are like a family. It's great to come back to this family. You guys feel like family. This is what the early church was like. They were one big family. And they were one big family that shared everything they owned. We'll come back to that in a minute. Luke goes on in verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So this one community had one simple message. Their simple message was, Jesus is risen. And great grace was on all of them. The reason for this grace is explained in verse 34. For there was not a needy person among them, because all of those who owned land and houses sold them. They brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed to each person as anyone had need. By giving, one thing I want to point out from that little verse in verse 34 is that by, by giving to the needs of Christians, of their fellow brothers and sisters in this family, both the people who, who give, who give the money or, or give whatever, um, and the people who receive, are, are both partakers of grace. Do, do you see how that works? It's a gracious action to sell something you own and give it to someone. They don't deserve it. And it's also, you're receiving grace when you receive it. And, and, and for me, that was the thing that struck me from this passage. Actually, by giving, it's an act of grace. And also by receiving, it's an act of grace. And that's something that we do in the family. Uh, but the other thing I want to point out from verse 34 is, do you notice that the early church, they just didn't sell everything and give everything? That they only sold property when someone else they knew had a need. So they didn't sell everything and give all the money to the church. What they did is they only sold when there was a need. So when they saw someone in their family in need, you know, that person needs bread for this week. How about I sell something so I can give them money so they can buy bread? So it was a need-driven selling rather than a blanket, sell everything. And this is the loving community that existed in this early church. And as I think about this, as I was thinking about this this week, what, what, what sort of struck me was this early church was more like a family than an institutional church. It, it felt more like a loving family. And, and how I was sort of thinking about it, it was like a family where, where the sister in the family who owns three investment properties, okay? She owns three investment properties and she sees her brother in need. And so she sells one of them. And she sells one to support her brother who has just recently been retrenched. He has a pregnant wife and he's struggling to support his two young kids. It's a family. That's what they, they do. It's, a, it's an ideal picture of a family. But what Luke then goes on to do is give us an ideal example of a family member. You see this in the character of Joseph. Have a look with me at verse 36. Luke says, Joseph, a Levite, a Cypriot by birth, whom the apostles, now I like to say nicknamed Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, bought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, Joseph, Luke holds up as the example, the ideal example of radical grace-driven generosity. 
Now, there are four quick things that I want to point out for us as application from, from Joseph and his story. Um, the first I want us to note is that he gave from his excess. He didn't sell his house. He didn't sell where he was living, but he sold an investment. He sold a field that he had. So he was giving out of his excess. And, and so for us, I'm not going to stand up here tonight, and I don't think the Bible is telling us to sell where we live. Because then we will be in need. We won't have a house, and we'll have to be living at the church. So it's sort of illogical to sell your own house. Um, the Bible here is telling us to sell, if we have excess, and we see someone need, use that excess to meet their need. The second thing I want to point out from Joseph is that he actually gave the money to the apostles. Did, did you, you saw that. He, he laid it at the apostles' feet. He, he didn't go and give the money to the individual who was in need. He, he gave it to, let's turn it, an organization who then distributed the money as the needs arose. So there was like an organization. I, I sort of think of um, giving to an organization like Compassion, where they understand the different needs going around the world. And they then can distribute the money as the needs arise, rather than giving individually to someone. Uh, the third thing to point out from Joseph is that his gift was an encouragement to the leaders. Do you see what they nicknamed him? They nicknamed him Barnabas. Now, Aussies are great at nicknames, aren't we? Uh, we know that we love someone when we give them a nickname. That's why, you know, dating people are all bubby and all this and all that. It's very cute. And you want to throw up when you hear it. But um, you know that you love someone when you give them a nickname. Uh, and so the apostles, they've given Joseph this nickname Barnabas because he's a great encouragement to them. And here, with him giving his money and selling his investments, he actually is encouraging them through his radical, grace-driven grace generosity. And the fourth thing, I want to point out, and I think this is the most significant thing, is that if you look at the apostles' preaching up until this point, there is no mention of them demanding that people sell their properties. There's no mention of that. The only thing that the apostles are preaching, you saw it at the beginning, was they were preaching Jesus Christ and Him risen from the dead. And so the thing for Joseph... He was so convinced that Jesus had risen from the dead. He was so convinced that Jesus was radically generous to him. Radically generous to the point of giving his life. That this motivated Joseph to be radically generous to give an investment that he has to his brothers and sisters. And so this, friends, is the call to radical generosity. It is understanding Jesus' generosity for us and overflowing from that, we are then generous to our brothers and sisters. Well, how does this apply here at Church by the Bridge? How are we going to be radically grace-driven towards generosity? Well, I've just got a couple of musings here as I was sitting having a coffee. I was thinking about how does this apply at this church? Well, these are some of my thoughts, um, my questions to you. Uh, if you have shares, you get a dividend from your shares. From that investment, you get a dividend. Why not use that dividend to help fund community lunch or the work at Greenway? 
Or if you have an investment property, why not use some of the rent and give it to a Christian organization like Compassion, whether then they can distribute that to the needs of people all around the world? Or if you have some spare cash and you're not sure what to do with it, why not think about investing it with a a not-for-profit microfinance company or organization, which gives sort of small microfinance loans to help people out of poverty? I'm a student, I'll just share a little story with microfinance. I'm giving to a company in Bangalore, which provides microfinance loans uh, to uh, women uh, who live in the slums in Bangalore. And that money just keeps rolling over. They pay it back with interest, and then they just keep giving it out. And it's a fantastic way to give, to help people, Christians, brothers and sisters, out of poverty. Um, One other story while we're on that. Uh, I was over there last year. And I met one of the people that I was giving to. And they were selling um, saris. And they'd started in the slums. And when I met to them, they were in a house, which they had bought with the money that they had made from their business. And they were telling me with great pride about their daughter, who has now just opened up her hairdressing salon. And she put herself through school with the money that they had made from this microfinance loan. So really, if you think one generation out of poverty, fellow Christian, brother and sister in India. So I really want us to consider here in Sydney, how can we use our investments to help our brothers and sisters who are in need? I hope that these have sort of started your brain ticking on what you can do with your investments. Um, But also, friends, as I consider us at Church by the Bridge, if we just think about this community here, um, in Australia, money is is really not the thing that we all need. There's, there's some in our community that need money, but it's not really a basic need that we are lacking here in Australia. But I think, as I think about our church, across the congregations, the things that we are lacking is, is a social connection, it is a feeling of belonging, is a feeling of friendship, is a feeling of family. So we are a time-poor community here at Church by the Bridge. But, but I want to encourage us to think, how can I sacrifice, be radically generous with my time to meet some of those basic needs of friendship, of community, of love, of care? And then finally, others of us here at Church by the Bridge are quite skilled. We have certain skills uh, that uh, we can use to help brothers and sisters. I know some of us amongst us are, are, are lawyers, and uh, I'm a lawyer myself. Um, please don't judge me for that. Um, but uh, I'm a reform lawyer, and now I'm a minister, so I don't know which is better. Um, but as, as lawyers, why can't we do some pro bono work to help a brother or sister who's fleeing from Syria, who's currently locked up in a, in a refugee camp somewhere in the world, trying to get into Australia? Why can't we do some work to help them? Or or if we're an accountant, why can't we offer our skills to help brothers and sisters who have budgeting issues or who have financial issues? Why why can't we do that? Or if we're in marketing, why can't we offer our skills and abilities to help those Christian organizations with their marketing strategies? Because let's be honest, some Christian organizations, their marketing is shocking um, and they need a lot of help. And and we can offer that. We we can offer those, those skills to help meet these basic needs 
of our Christian brothers and sisters. And finally, brothers and sisters, I I want us to think wider than Sydney. Uh, We're part of a Christian community, a Christian community that extends throughout Australia but also the world. And, And we may be relatively wealthy here in Australia, but we have brothers and sisters overseas, part of our family, who have very basic needs, water, food, shelter. I want to encourage us to think about how we can meet those as well. Well, this passage, the first part of this passage at least, encourages us to radical generosity. It's driven by grace, by the grace of the gospel. And if Joseph is held out as the ideal example, or Ananias and Sapphira, they're held out as the negative example. Um, These guys, this couple, is held out as like the warning bells to us in Christian community. They're held out as the people that could bring this loving community undone. And so this is my second and and final point, um, misleading masqueraders. Everybody knows what a masquerade is, right? You wear the mask and it sort of hides who you are. Yep, all on track, sweet. Uh, Follow along with me uh, from chapter 5, verse 1, and we'll read about Ananias and Sapphira. 5.1. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. Verse 1, sounding pretty good so far, sounding like Joseph. Uh, However, he kept back part of the proceeds from the sale with his wife's knowledge. So they acted together, sort of like reminiscent of Adam and Eve in in Genesis 3, where they acted together to conspire against God. And they brought a portion of it, not all of it, a portion of it, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the proceeds from the field? Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it all at your disposal? Why is it that you have planned this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When he heard these words, Ananias dropped dead, and great fear came on all who heard. The young men got up, wrapped his body, carried him out, and buried him. Now this is quite a confronting, quite a confronting part of scripture. And it took me a little while to wrestle with it and, and figure out what it's actually trying to say. And I, I think the key to unlocking uh, this very confronting part of Scripture is found in verse 3. And, and it's with the word filled in verse 3, where, where Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? Now, as we've been going through Acts, Acts 1, 2, 3, 4, whenever the apostles are talking about Christian believers... They refer to them as people who are filled with the, you guys tell me, with the Spirit. They're they're filled with the Spirit. But here Peter says to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? He hasn't got the Spirit in him. And, And what his actions reveal is that Ananias is not someone who's filled with the Spirit. I'm putting it out there that Ananias was masquerading as a believer. He he was not a true believer. 
He was part of the church community, but his actions reveal that he was not filled with the Spirit, but rather filled with Satan. And unfortunately, his wife is also wearing the same mask. She too is masquerading as a believer. And as I was thinking about it, I was like, why would they do that? But as you think about the early church, you can sort of see why Ananias and Sapphira are are attracted to the early church. If you think about it, the church is an exploding grassroots movement in Jerusalem. It's focused on healing people, helping the poor, and loving one another. It's something great to be a part of. And Ananias and Sapphira, they were attracted to the horizontal element of this new movement. They loved the horizontal. They loved the relationships and the community and and the good works that the church was doing. But what they did is they neglected the vertical aspect of the church. They neglected the relationship they needed with God, which motivated the horizontal. Now, why is this such a big deal? Why is this such a big deal? Well, I think Luke gives quite a big chunk to Ananias and Sapphira to show that actually this is one of the ways that Satan uses to undo loving Christian community. If you think about chapter 4 last week, Luke recorded that the attack was coming from the outside. The attack on the church was coming from the leaders uh, of the temple. They were attacking the church. But this week, in chapter 5, what we see is Satan is actually mounting an attack on the church internally, from the inside. And it's the internal attacks on the church that are most destructive. I think we all know that. It's the, it's the attacks that come from within, from, from people masquerading as believers. And, I mean, you, you only need to look at the fallout from the recent Royal Commission uh, into institutional sexual abuse to see how an internal attack on the church can just distort and ruin the church's reputation in our society. And this is why I think Luke purposely contrasts Ananias and Sapphira, and Joseph. He holds these two examples up as warning bells to us. They're sort of like air raid sirens during World War II of the warning that's coming. Look out, danger is coming. And what Luke is doing is he's pointing to the seriousness and the consequences of a masquerading believer. Now, this point, um, I, I want to ask you guys, do, do you sometimes feel that you're wearing a mask? Do you sometimes feel that you're, you're masquerading as a believer here in this church community? Now, now don't get me wrong, I'm not talking about um, people who are Christians who believe in Jesus and, and who sin occasionally, because we all as Christians, stumble and fall and sin. That's part of being a Christian. And we repent and we get up and we keep going. We're moving forward. But, but, But the people that I'm talking about are the people who are part of a Christian community merely for the horizontal aspects, merely for the love, the care, the social belonging of a Christian community. That's what they're drawn here for. And they're drawn for the horizontal and they reject the vertical. 
They, they want nothing to do with a relationship with God. Well, maybe this, is, maybe this is you at the moment. Maybe you're sitting here tonight and this is where you're at. Um, you love the social aspects of church. You, you love the community aspect of church. Uh, you love the social justice side of church. But a relationship with God is just not on your agenda. I'll admit that at sometimes in my Christian life, this has been me. I've been masquerading as a Christian. I've been drawn to that horizontal and rejected the vertical. And I'm sure as you, you talk to many Christians, you'll find that they've had a similar experience at some point during their Christian walk. But if, if you are here tonight and if you're convicted that you are presently masquerading as a, as a believer, if you're wearing a mask, I, I want to say that's a really good thing. I, I want to say that it's a good thing because unlike Ananias and Sapphira, you've noticed that you're masquerading as a believer. And recognizing and admitting this is the first step to doing something about it. So if this is where you're at tonight, I want to encourage you to talk to someone. Talk to someone you trust. Uh, if you want, grab Dan after the service. Chat with him. And I really want to free you from the stress of maintaining the masquerade. Let it go tonight. Let that be the night. Um, if you're not a Christian here, if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, but you're, you're here tonight, uh, I'm stoked that you came to church. It's awesome. Welcome. Thank you for coming. Um, and this text, you might be surprised, this text has something to say to you as well. Um, it has two things to say. Uh, the first thing it has to say for the person who doesn't call himself a Christian is that it actually gives you a glimpse what the Christian community looks like. It gives you a glimpse of the big family that we are, the loving, inclusive family that we are here at church. It holds that out as something to be rejoiced in. But it also reveals that everybody in this community, everyone who claims to be a Christian or everyone who goes to church, may actually not be a Christian. They can be masquerading as a Christian. And my challenge to you, if you're, if you're not currently a Christian, if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, is to not judge Christianity based on the people in the church or the people who call themselves Christians, but to judge Christianity by looking at the person and work of Jesus. That's my challenge to you tonight. So in summing up, for us, here at Church by the Bridge, here Saturday night, 5.30. How does this, what are we to do? Well, for us from this passage, uh, we need to hear the warning of Ananias and Sapphira. We need to hear that air raid siren that's going off. Because friends, if we want this loving, inclusive, vibrant church, this community that we all are desiring, we need to be people who are gripped by radical generosity. Radical, grace-driven generosity. We need to be people where there's nothing too big to be done. A place where people long to join because they see love 
lived out in action. Friends, this is the ingredients for a community that is founded on radical, grace-driven generosity. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word tonight. Uh, We thank you that your word is relevant to us here in Sydney, 2,000 years after it was written. Uh, We thank you that it it gives us the ingredients for a loving, generous community. Uh, Lord, I, I pray that as your people, we would be motivated by grace, your grace shown to us, to live this out in action, in word, and in deed. And we do all these things for your glory. Amen.